0: Morning, everyone. My name is Mark. I have the privilege of serving uh, in the worship ministry at Reality. Like Billy said, today's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 13, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident In Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received Or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry Whether living in plenty or in want I Can do all this through him? who gives me strength. This is God's Word.
1: Thank you, Mark. Morning, friends. As we turn the corner towards Christmas and the Advent season, we enter the final two weeks of our series through this incredible book, The Letter of Paul to the Philippian Church, And as we do, we continue this theme of joy. Where do we find joy into the Christmas season? And the Apostle Paul has been exploring this theme of joy in relation to all these different aspects of life. And today, we come to a topic that I know hits home for many of us, and that is the issue of Anxiety. We've just read uh, verses 4 all the way to 13. We're going to look specifically this morning at verses 4 through 9. So let's pray together as we do. And let's ask the God of peace to bring healing to our anxious hearts. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every person in this room and those joining us online matter to you. You are aware of all the things that concern us. You address our cares and our concerns and our worries and our anxieties by drawing our attention to yourself. And so we pray that you would do that today as we're bringing here, even this morning, all of our, our, our worries from the last week or the upcoming season or whatever it might be, Lord. We pray that the voice of your spirit bringing your word to bear on our hearts would just cut through all of the noise and that our attention would be upon you. And as a result, that we would experience the peace that you sent Jesus to secure. Pray that you would do that today for us all, including those who do not yet know you, that they would put their trust in you and be saved. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. Well, true story, in 1965, the United States Congress held a lengthy hearing to discuss what government would need to do in order to change and adapt to the future of the work week because they had reports saying that due to the rise in automation, by the year 2000, people would only have to work 20 hours a week. No joke, they actually talked about and thought that the national infrastructure would need to be changed because everyone would be carefree. Summer camps would need to be open year round National parks would be overcrowded. Freeways would be jammed because everyone is so relaxed and at peace. They would be on vacation half the year. Now, we all find that funny because, of course, the truth is we seem to be worse than ever before when it comes to our cares and when it comes to our worries. In fact, according to the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, the feeling of overwhelm an overwhelming anxiety affects one in five to a paralyzing degree. Add to that the dynamic of social media and even the most ordinary tasks of daily life end up feeling more like an Olympic competition, or at least they do if you're like me. Work and relationships, friendships can bring dread rather than comfort. And I think we can all agree that anxiety, for many, has come to be the new normal. And that, friends, is a problem. But there's another problem, and that is the way in which our society is trying to deal with anxiety. So many of the popular remedies, especially what has come to be called Instagram therapy, seems to be a radical self-focus, but it doesn't end up helping us, and it certainly doesn't end up helping other people. I was struck by this when I read an article this week in the New York Times. It was an op-ed piece by a woman named uh, Tara Isabella Burton, who's written several fascinating books. She got her degree in theology from Oxford. But here's what she says about the way in which most people are responding to anxiety in response to what she calls Instagram therapy and its effect on other people. She says, quote, It's not just that this Instagram therapy gives its adherents a convenient excuse to bail on dinner parties or silence our phones when friends text us in tears. Rather, it's that according to this newly prevalent gospel of self-actualization, the pursuit of private happiness has increasingly become culturally celebrated as the ultimate goal. The needs of the bailed-on friends in question go unmentioned. The solution that our culture so oftenly gives is this radical self-centeredness. Do whatever it takes to free yourself even at the expense of others, which ends up bringing more anxiety to other people. But here in Paul's letter on joy, he presents a very different solution to our cares and our worries and our fears and our anxieties. And it is one that actually turns us away from ourselves, benefits other people, and actually leads to true peace. This might seem counterintuitive, but it actually leads to the peace that we all long to experience. And so in his letter, as he comes to land the plane in the fourth chapter, he now moves from addressing division within the church, which we learned about last week from Billy, to addressing division within our own souls, our interior lives. And though we would all like to to deal with things like anxiety in one fell swoop, dealing with anxiety is not a one-time event. It is a lifestyle So, how can we move from anxiety to peace? Well, there are three practices. Three practices that we must embrace on a daily basis in this ongoing battle. And the first practice is this simply, rejoice repeatedly. (laughs) And both words are important. Paul has already addressed this theme of joy throughout his letter. He's also pointed out that our habits and our patterns not only shape us, but they actually impact other people, as we learned from Dom two weeks ago. So what practice can we embrace that can fight off anxiety and promote peace? Well, he says in verse four and five, rejoice in the Lord sometime. No, that's not what he says. (laughs) He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord on occasion. But rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice! Exclamation mark. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He's talked about the theme of joy, and now he repeats it. Which is amazing, considering where he was when he wrote this letter. By way of reminder, Paul was imprisoned in Rome, unjustly for his faith. Terrible circumstance, horrible situation of all the people who had a reason to complain. It was Paul. He could have been, woe is me, the Roman government... I'm a victim of the system. It's all corrupt. I shouldn't be in here. I was doing the right thing. I was doing gospel things, and now I'm in jail. I mean, if I were Paul, which is an exercise I entertain often in my mind. It's probably not healthy. If I were Paul, I would have written to the Philippians like a letter of cynicism or even of sarcasm or whatever. Those would be my defaults. But instead, in his prison cell, he writes on joy. He is not writing from a place of comfort, but a place of challenge. And his instruction to the church and to you and I today is rejoice. But what does it mean to rejoice? Well, it's more than just simply feel, feel happy. Paul doesn't write to us and say, hey, in the midst of all your challenges, guys, just feel happy. That's a command. That would be discouraging. I'd be like, Hmm. Yep. no, still don't feel happy. Like, how do you just feel happy? There's more depth to this word, rejoice. To rejoice simply means to treasure something, to add up the worth of something in your heart and mind until your affections sweeten. Here's one definition. Rejoicing, specifically, is a way of praising God, until your heart is sweetened and rested, and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. That's what it means to rejoice. It is a discipline. It means I need to praise God regardless of how I feel. I need to add up his worth in my heart and in my mind until my grip on all these lesser things begins to loosen. That's what it means to rejoice. So the command to rejoice is not to celebrate God if you feel like it this morning. Right? When you gather here on Sunday, you don't hear the, whoever's leading worship say, Hey, if you guys feel like it, praise the Lord. Because otherwise we'd get like one clappy person in the back like, yeah! And the rest of us would be like, well... That's not really a motive worth appealing to. It's, is God worthy this morning? And we would all say, yes. yes because regardless of how horrible your week was, God's worthiness has not changed. Yes. And therefore, our reason to rejoice has not changed. But there is a practice that we are to commit to in order to experience the benefits of rejoicing. Notice Paul's words here are not a suggestion They are a command. Which, if you think about it for a moment, is actually quite remarkable. God commands that you rejoice. You know what that means? It means we worship a God who puts your joy as a priority in your life. God's like, I care about you. I want you to experience joy. And so I've made your joy a priority by commanding you to rejoice in me because that's what's going to bring you most joy. And I care about your joy. This is a command, yes, but it's a, comm- it's a loving command. What a God that we serve, that he would make our joy a priority. Reflect on that this week. The term rejoice also denotes an expressed joy, which means that we would even use our words to declare this kind of joy. Oftentimes, when you see the word rejoice in the Bible, it is expressed verbally, whether in spoken word or in song. Rejoice, like a shout of praise, which I find very interesting because when trouble comes, if you're anything like me, you don't hesitate to talk about it. How's your week? Oh, horrible. I got hit with this bill, and then my health problems, and the kids, they're a disaster. You know, it's like, we don't hesitate to complain. Like, complaining is not a discipline you have to teach your children that doesn't come naturally to them. You're like, now, children, now that you're six, we just want to teach you the subtle, delicate art of complaint. Like, no, it comes naturally. We all talk about it. The amount of words that we use to complain. If we just measured it, it it might even surprise us. Loud and long. But by contrast, when God blesses us, do we sing about it? Do we celebrate it? Do we talk about it? If I am so expressive when it comes to my difficulties, why am I not as expressive when it comes to God's blessing? Rejoice has a verbal quality to it. Talk about it. Sing about it. This is good and right for us to do so. He does not say to rejoice in circumstances. But rather, his instruction is rejoice in what? In the Lord. Meaning, God gives you a reason to rejoice. He doesn't just command that you rejoice. He gives you a reason to rejoice. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in the Lord rejoice in who he is and what he's done and what he will do. And as we rejoice in the Lord, even through verbal expression and even through song, it ends up serving as a testimony. Our rejoicing in this fallen world is a testimony to the world that our trust and hope is in something beyond this world. And what an opportunity we have to do that in this Advent season. I would dare to call this a defiant joy. When all the headlines that you wake up to every morning are like, the world, we're doomed. <laughs> Basically, like my summary of the news every morning, we're doomed. <laughs> Breaking news, we're all doomed. <laughs> that's, basic, that's the summary, right? But in defiance of that the believer in Jesus Christ says, nonetheless, I'm going to rejoice. And the world looks on and they're like, are you crazy? You're like, I'm not crazy. I'm a Christian. There's a difference. <laughs> <laughs> I have a reason. I have a, we're not just people who are like, oh, let's just, it's all happy. Yay. Why are you happy? I don't know. Like that's, that's not the life of a Christian. It's rejoice in the Lord. It is a, it is a joy that says, you know what? My circumstances are difficult. The outlook on the world is bleak, but I have a Savior who is risen. I have a Savior who has come. I have a Savior who has come again. I have a Savior who's not only rescued me, but He's going to make all things right in the world one day. Now that is a reason to rejoice. It's a defiant joy. Paul is talking about here. It is a nevertheless joy. Yes, things are hard, but nevertheless, I will rejoice. Defiant joy is what Paul is showing from his prison cell in Rome. See, God wants you to have joy, but he's not going to allow you to find it in a cheap substitute. And so he directs your rejoicing toward him. And then notice Paul for emphasis. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Put it on repeat, as the kids say. It's in the continual sense, which emphasizes the power of repetition. I want us to think about this for a moment. When do we rejoice? Always. How long should we rejoice for? Always. There is a power to the repetition of rejoicing that we cannot take for granted. We all know the power of repetition in our lives to reinforce something. Let me state a principle and just give you an example. There is no formation without repetition. There is no formation without repetition. How many of you had to learn an instrument at a, at a young age? You remember, for those of you who learned piano, oh, I was, I was subjected to this, the Suzuki method. My teacher, not very happy. I'd play, and they're like, again! You know, like three blind mice, again! I'm like, I don't want to play it again, again! Why? Because through repetition, you are formed. But when I switch from piano to guitar much to the chagrin of my mother, it was through repetition that I learned to to play. I learned to be familiar with that instrument. I I was formed and shaped through the process. There is no formation without repetition. The same is true, of course, of of our physical bodies. And repetition, especially when it comes to the life of faith, is absolutely important. And I know for some of us, we often think like, oh, it might be insincere, or it might be, you know, mundane or boring, but that's only if we think about rejoicing as mere personal expression. But it's so much more than that. The author James K.A. Smith, he wrote a book on the power of habit in the Christian life. It's an excellent book. And he says this, particularly talking about gathered worship like we're doing right now and the importance of it, and engaging in it, regardless of how you feel about it. Here's what he says. If you think of worship as a bottom-up, expressive endeavor, repetition will seem insincere and inauthentic. But when you see worship as an invitation to a top-down encounter in which God is refashioning your deepest habits, then repetition looks very different. It's how God re us. In other words, if I'm only going to engage in rejoicing and worship, depending on how I feel about it, then sure, the call to worship is going to seem inauthentic. Oh, I'm not really into it. Because you're looking at worship primarily as a matter of personal expression. Do I like it? Do I like the song? Do I like the vibe right now? But he's saying it's actually a top-down encounter. God says, I call you to worship. And as you worship, it shapes you as a person. It's a part of your formation. Friends, us gathering here week after week after week, even though so many things on your calendar and in your, your, your phone call life and your text life and your email inbox seem so much more important in the moment, I cannot tell you enough how vital it is that you embrace the rhythm of gathering together as a community and singing regardless of your circumstances and learning from scripture and worshiping in response as a part of your formation. Do not underestimate the power of rejoicing. It's the process that God invites you to saying, hey, I know what you're going through. I know how you feel this morning, but Believe me, God would say, this is an invitation to your spiritual formation. Rejoice. I will say it again. Rejoice. There is no formation without repetition. Paul's idea of worship is one that forms you. And notice, that's why he then mentions your character immediately after that. He says, let your gentleness be known to all, verse 5. You might think this is a random statement that Paul makes after a statement on worship, but they are connected because we become like what we worship. This repetition of rejoicing is so important because as we refocus ourselves on God, we are changed in the process. We begin to show the fruit of the Spirit as we repeatedly worship our Lord and Savior. See, this repetition is so important. Let me just give you one more more quote, one of my favorites from G.K. Chesterton, who says, you shouldn't think of repetition as a routine. You should think of it as an encore. I love this. Chesterton says, a child kicks his legs rhythmically through excess, not absence of life. Those of you who have children are very familiar with this, because children have abounding vitality because they are in spirit fierce and free. Some of you say amen. amen. Therefore, they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. <laughs> For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, <laughs> but perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening to the moon, do it again. The repetition in nature may not be a mere reoccurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. (laughs) How great is that? (laughs) We need to become like children. We're like, again, God sees you reading the word of God, his word in the morning, and he's like, do it again. When we sing on Sunday, like, do it again. This is so good. We, we get bored. We move on. We think it's no longer important, but nothing could be farther from the truth. We need to rejoice, and we need to do it repeatedly. It shapes us. This isn't mere repetition. It is an encore. You're like, yes, more of that in my life. May our rejoicing be Repetitive. So here we are, Sunday morning, we're going to sing some songs. Some of them may be familiar, some of them might not be. Do it again, sing anyway, because we have a reason to sing. It recenters us on the true source of our joy, and it de-centers us away from what kills our joy. And we find the motivation for doing this by remembering that, as Paul says here in verse 5, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is both near to us, and he is coming for us. And if we fail to respond with this practice of joy, it is because we have forgotten how massive, how incredible it is that God has saved us. We want to deal with our anxiety. Rejoice repeatedly. And we do this because the problem of anxiety is always scratching at the door. And so the second practice is this, pray continually. Again, dealing with our worries and our our fears and our anxiety, it's not just a one-time event, it's a lifestyle. So rejoice repeatedly. And second, pray continually. Again, Paul here does not offer a suggestion. He gives us a command. But like the first It is a command for our good. Look at verses six and seven. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In giving us this command, Paul believes that something huge is at stake. He's not saying that we shouldn't think about the future. He's not saying that we shouldn't make plans or be concerned about the things going on around us. There is such a thing as constructive concern. But the word anxiety here can be translated as Distracting care. Our cares, which may start out healthy, become very easily consumed with speculation, exaggeration, and aggravation. See, that's like its cousin, worry, is care gone wrong. So yeah, if there's a health thing that has come up in your life, sure, pay attention to it. The Bible doesn't say ignore it. But when we sit there in the dark and we replay the 8 million scenarios in, my, in our minds over and over again, on repeat, going to the worst case scenario possible, it, am I alone here? Like, this is literally my life. I'm like, well, if this happens, then I have this. I've got this rash on my, on my right thigh, and of course, I'm doomed. Like, life is over. I've got one year to live. What's my life insurance policy? Like, that, that, welcome to my world. Worry is care gone wrong. Or your children, oh my goodness. Your children. Worry, care, anxiety. The financial situation. What's going on in the world? What's going on in our nation? The Bible doesn't say you shouldn't be concerned about it. But because we're fallen creatures, our care goes wrong. It becomes a, a, an inordinate care fueled by speculation, oftentimes exaggeration, and aggravation. It's care gone wrong. And what it does is it it promotes irrational fear in our lives. It promotes, especially for some of us, heightened irritability. Some of you are like, amen, as you elbow your spouse. Physical tension, emotional strain, and mental distress. This is not how we are intended to live. In a parallel and familiar passage, Jesus asks a question in his teaching about anxiety's cousin, which is worry. What does worrying accomplish, he asks? Nothing. In fact, the opposite is true. Worrying destroys, it actually takes. I once heard, I cannot find the source of this quote, but I once heard worry defined as interest paid in advance on a debt you may never owe. <laughs> and I was like, yes, yes, that is what it feels like. For many of us, worry feels even like an addiction. But by standard definitions of addiction, it's, it's not really an addiction. Because usually, giving in to an addiction, there's some sort of temporary pleasure first before you get the destructive results. Right? Like a substance abuse. Usually people are addicted because there's an initial high followed by a very deep low. But with worry, like whoever spent their weekend worrying and be like, hey, how was your weekend? Like, oh, I worried all weekend at first. It was great. (laughs) Whoever, nobody says that. Like, what did you do yesterday? Oh yeah, I worried. Man, at first few hours I was worrying. It was so good. And then later I I was low. Like nobody there's like no high you get from worrying. And so in that sense, it's unlike a modern definition of addiction. But we feel like we're accomplishing something. Because the lie is that we think that we're far more in control than we really are. We feel like we're actually managing it. But let's be clear, feeding our anxiety and feeding our worry is actually an enemy of faith. It's an enemy of faith. See, to be a follower of Jesus is to know that you have a God who cares for you, a God who values you far more than you could possibly imagine, and a God who is sovereign. And so in our extreme anxiety and our worry, it's this forgetting or a refusing to accept that God is sovereign and we are not. That he is God and that we are not. It's where the believer is tempted to act like an unbeliever in the valley of anxiety and worry. Or I've heard it put this way if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe that God has rescued you from eternal destruction and from the power of spiritual darkness, and that he's given you. E- this eternal hope, and he's placed his Holy Spirit in you, forgiven you of all your sins, and placed you into a community, but you still don't think you're going to make it through the day. (laughs) Let me just read it. Jesus' words himself. He says in Matthew 6 verse 30, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, oh you of little faith? That's a subtle dig. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's the priority. So what does that mean practically for our prayers? Well, it means we need to pray specifically and we need to pray thankfully. See, Paul doesn't just say, hey, stop being anxious. He gives us some instruction. He invites us to pray. He doesn't just say, stop being anxious, period. He says, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, pray. Pray your anxiety. It's a quote from a book our staff recently read on prayer that we talked about over the the summer, A Praying Life. And Paul Miller says, I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who has an excellent prayer life. (laughs) Oh, that was very convicting. Let me say it again. I have yet to meet a chronic worrier who has an excellent prayer life. When we are worrying in the face of all that God has said and all that he has done, who he is and and what he will do, then we are in fact seeking security in something other than him. So we need to rather bring our problems, our cares, our worries to him. Instead of obsessing over our circumstances, we need to direct our attention to God. So make a list, pray specifically. Make a list of what you're worried about. Make a list of what you're anxious about. May your anxiety list become your prayer list. Make make a list of those things and then bring them to God in prayer. Bring them to him in prayer. God, I'm anxious about my children. But instead of dwelling on it for the next eight hours, I'm going to bring my anxiety to you. I'm going to bring my worry to you. God, I'm worried about the finances. I'm going to bring those to you. God, I'm worried about my family members. God, I'm worried about my health. I'm anxious about it. I'm going to bring that to you. I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to bring my anxieties into the light. Friends, we need to pray continually. And in that, we need to pray specifically. A lot of us, were just very vague in our prayers. Lord, just help me kind of whatever. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) But what if today we prayed specifically, God, I am anxious about this very thing, and so I am going to bring it to you. It's, it's amazing. Many of you have been Christians for more than five minutes. You know this, but how often we fail to do it. The other day, literally this last week, I was so anxious and worried. I was like, what? I pace. Does anyone pace? Is that a forgotten art? Like, oh, I'm a good pacer. Hands behind the back. I, I, I feel like I need like a pipe and like a shawl, you know? I'm like, like in the old movies, just kind of walking around like that. And my wife is literally like, honey, why don't you sit down and let's pray? I was like, wait, what? Well, yeah, sh- sure. Of course. I'm talking about prayer this Sunday. It's in my sermon. <laughs> oh, you mean actually pray? Right, right. Of course. Cause I was like, "Fine, yeah, just trying to lead our family, you know. Here, just gonna sit down. Yes, let's pray." How often do we actually pray our anxieties? Pray them. And then he adds this little nugget with Thanksgiving. It's not just a day. We oh, we, Christians, we love Thanksgiving. It's our favorite day of the year. <laughs> it should be every day of the year. But the only way that you can pray with thanksgiving is if you leave your requests with God. The only way you can really pray with thanksgiving is if you actually entrust your worries to God. But so often we're, we're like those who are, were we're trying to delegate a task. And you know how for some of us that's really hard to do with someone you don't quite trust? Like, I'm like that with my kids. If I give them a chore, like, oh, Dad, I can use the hammer. I'm like, oh, gosh, okay. Um, yes, so here's the, here's the hammer, and, and I'm, I'm going to hold it with you, okay, because I don't really trust you with it. So I'm like, I'm holding on to it as they're holding on to it before they, like, bash, bash the wall. Now, there might be some wisdom in that with our children, but that makes no sense when we're talking about the God who created us. Many of us treat God like I treat my children with tools, Right. Okay, God, here's my anxiety. You got it, right? Uh, oh, I don't know if you got it. I'm just going to hang on to it a little bit. I, I, I mean, you're God. I'm not, but hey, I mean, you need help too, right? Like, I, I got this. But when we actually trust God and say, God, I'm leaving it with you. You love me. You're sovereign. And that's why I can give thanks. Notice he doesn't say if your prayers are answered in the specific way that you desire give thanks, but it's as you bring your requests to God, do so with thanksgiving that whatever the outcome, he will work all things together for good. Paul Miller, to quote him one more time, he says, prayer does not offer us a less busy life, but a less busy heart. Because as we do these things, he says, the peace of God will be with you. There's a promise there in verse seven, the peace. But the way we experience this promise of peace is by focusing on the one who gives us peace. See, friends, here's a truth that I'm continuing to learn. The answer to our anxiety is not the absence of problems. It's the presence of God. The answer to our anxiety is not the absence of problems. It's the presence of God. And the phrase in which Paul uses here is so beautiful. When he says the peace of God will guard your heart, you know what that means? Imagine an army marching around a fortress. That's the idea of guarding. You could even translate it, the peace of God will march around your heart. (laughs) Like there's your heart and God's guarding it with an entire army marching around it. That will be our experience if we are entrusting ourselves and our cares and our anxieties to God. But there's one more thing. These anxieties can't just be removed. They must be replaced. And that's the last point. We need to rejoice repeatedly, pray continually, and third, think specifically. And so to end, God moves us from anxiety to peace by drawing our attention to focus on what is good in our thought life. And so Paul says in verse 8 and 9, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. There's a discipline here. We must work to rearrange our focus so that the God of peace can freely work in our lives. Paul says, put this into practice. Whatever is true. Not what we speculate on. Whatever is true. We have an enemy who's the father of lies. The devil who would love to get us to believe in lies, but we're told here to meditate and focus on what is true. And then he says, what is noble and right. There's a lot in the world that's not noble and right. We're not called to bury our heads in the sand, but we have a choice as to what we must dwell upon and turn over in our minds and to focus on. Even down to how much time you spend reading what kind of material. I know far too many Christians who spend hours digesting the news cycle and minutes talking about the Bible. It should not be so in the church whatever is noble and right, whatever is pure and lovely and admirable. Celebrate what is morally pure, not just gossip about what is bad. Take in what is genuinely beautiful and give it a place where it is worthy of admiration, and whatever is excellent and praiseworthy. That is, anything that's virtue motivates us or praiseworthy. Dwell on things, he says, that are worthy of commending them to other people. God's word guides us into all of these things. And ultimately, to think about what is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, and praiseworthy, is to think of Jesus. It's to think of Jesus. These characteristics are to fill our minds because they point us to Jesus. He is pure in every way. And he is the reason for our peace. He purchased our peace when he went to the cross. He purchased our peace with God and forgiveness of sin when he died in our place as a sacrifice. Jesus took the worst case scenario for us so that we could have the best case scenario for all eternity. Preach that to your anxieties. Because if you're like me, you think of everything, worst case scenario. Rash on my right thigh, I'm gonna die. (laughs) Worst case scenario thinking. But you know what the worst case scenario would be? Is if all of us were left dead in our sins and our trespasses for eternity. That's worst case scenario. That is the worst case scenario. But God sent Jesus to come and live in our behalf and to die in our behalf, to take the worst case scenario possible so that you could have the best case scenario for eternity. So if Jesus has already dealt with our greatest need, how much more will he deal with your lesser needs? So that even the Apostle Peter says, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Worship is your greatest weapon against worry. And Jesus is worthy of our worship. Amen? Let's do that now. Father, we thank you that you have not given us platitudes to fight anxiety, but a person You've given us power, and you've given us peace. I pray that even right now we would see, for some, maybe for the first time, for many of us, a reminder of the power of worship in our lives, of focusing on you and rejoicing in you, bringing our anxieties to you in prayer, and meditating and dwelling on all that is good and true and beautiful that you have created. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who's never accepted Jesus. I pray that right now they would know that apart from you, there can be no salvation and no true peace. But if they trust in the finished work of Jesus, they can experience that peace. So I pray that they would do so even now. And Father, as we have this moment to respond in prayer, and in communion, and even in rejoicing, lifting our voices. I pray that as we focus on you, our cares and our anxieties would shrink. So Holy Spirit, would you work in us right now? And would we not be passive But would we truly respond to what your Holy Spirit wants to do in our hearts? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.